now recording with no beard. Today I have Michael Salinas with me. He has blogged multiple times at the Tory Gazette, and I wanted to ask him about the musical Hamilton and a specific tweet of his that I wasn't so fond of. So without further ado, Michael, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to the musical Hamilton? The musical Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda is probably my second favorite musical easily behind Les Miserables. And I think the reasons for both of them being my favorites are having to do with how they tell the story. Les Miserables is essentially an opera. It's a musical, but it's essentially an opera. Everything is sung. There's very little dialogue. Hamilton is the exact same way, except it's basically a rap opera. Um, When you and I talked about Hamilton last, we talked about how many words they fit into each minute. And I think the the musical runtime is like two hours and some, but if they had actually stretched out the condensed raps that it has, it would have gone like four hours or something like that and been a ridiculous amount of time. But no, it uh, tells the story of Alexander Hamilton, the one of the founding fathers who started the National Bank and whatnot. And that's not even why I like it. I like it because it combines history and musical and a musical. But um, I like it because they analyze different parts of Hamilton's life and his resilience to opposition and how he was able to write his way out of all of that, um, which struck a chord with me because I feel like I like to do something like that also. Like, I, there's an issue, I want to write about it, or I, yeah, writing is essentially an escape. Um, but also his determination and his willingness to stand up for what he believed, even if it was a little, you know, from the hip and quick reaction, and his temper would always flare, but he stood up for what he believed, and he believed it passionately, too. Um, and I think it makes for a really great story. And the thing that... M- makes that so apparent and makes it him stand out with that is his kind of his friend but his enemy Aaron Burr um who is the opposite he he waits he he lies in wait for everything he he stays still and um he doesn't go with what he believes he just stays quiet and goes with whatever whatever comes along and he ends up losing everything for it well, thank you, Michael. Can you tell me a little bit specifically about the music of Hamilton? Not just the character Alexander Hamilton, but what really attaches you to this musical? The music of Hamilton is also pretty awesome. It, it is a rap opera, so there's a lot of words con- condensed um, into a small amount of space. It's ridiculous um, how Lin-Manuel Miranda writes these words and puts them together and um he's he himself plays alexander hamilton and he is fantastic and um as he raps songs like my shot and um somebody else who's one of my favorites is um renee um elise goldsberry who plays angelica schuyler um and her vocals are just ridiculous and uh satisfied um that song is so sad it breaks my heart and um her vocals are just incredible um same with Aaron Burr, um, who's played by Leslie Odom Jr., who sings Wait For It. It's just a, a quiet number with no rapping. It's just like a soulful tune that uh, also breaks your heart. Yeah, there's really a lot of sad songs in this musical. Um, but the music is phenomenal. And the rap battles between... There's a cabinet rap battle between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Um, 
it's a cabinet meeting that is a rap battle between the two of them, and it's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life, and made me like politics a little bit more again. To King's College, I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is, I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a hobby just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge, I'm a diamond in the rough, a shiny piece of coal, trying to reach my goal. My power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get cold. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish, I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this spark into a flame. All right, Michael, so I've got a little bit of a beef with you. We're uh, on Twitter here January the 12th, 2016, 3.03 p.m., and uh, you tweet out this, this gem. Quote, if I don't believe, no, sorry, if I didn't believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, comma, I would have no reason at all to be a Christian, period. And uh, you and I have been dialoguing about this over a couple texts and even a little bit more today. And I think we're on the same path. We're, we're in agreement on, on some things. And, and my reflux reaction to this, because, I mean, it's got, like, likes and retweets. It's a, it's a good tweet. People are affirming what you said. Um, my reflux about it comes from a, a bit of an apologetic perspective um, that many in the evangelical world and the conservative world continue to echo this refrain that if the Bible has a single error in it, all of it has to be tossed. And we hear this from militant atheists, and we hear this from um, conservatives and fundamentalists alike in the church that l often leads young Christians, young apologists as they go to college or in there in high school, to feel like they need to defend the Bible tooth and nail for every small quotation, comma, historical point, etc. Now, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I don't believe the Bible contains any errors, but um, I also don't believe that if the Bible were to contain a small error, that we would have to toss it out as a historically valid presentation. So that when you're reading a historian, the fact that they make a mistake in one place does not mean that we can distrust everything that historian says. I mean, we can't even live like this practically. I'm sure you've told a lie. I know I've told a lie. And yet I still count you as a truthful, honest person that though I know you have told a lie, and that's not even a factual incorrect statement, an intentionally incorrect and deceptive statement, I can still treat you as an individual who for the most part is accurate and true. And while I affirm that the Bible has no errors, I don't think that if we were to find an error, it is logically consistent to just toss the entirety of the Bible out. That ultimately what it comes down to is that militant atheists need to disprove the historical validity of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that 
wasn't entirely what you meant with this tweet. So I'm going to let you go ahead and, and take a chance to explain yourself. Yeah, I can see where that tweet could have been confusing and a little bit uh, maybe disconcerting. But no, I know we've spoken about what inerrancy means to both you and I, and we both don't necessarily agree that inerrancy means that uh, there's with no single historical or grammatical date error in the Bible, but rather that it refers more specifically to there is no error in relating the truths that relate to Jesus Christ, i.e. the the laws and the prophecies um, that were fulfilled by him, um, his birth, death, and resurrection, and the witnesses of the epistles um, that uh, speak of his um, birth, death, and resurrection, and his further appearances to St. Paul and St. Peter and things like that. Um, so when I'm talking about inerrancy, that's that's what I'm referring to, not necessarily the um, you know historicity of it and whatnot. Because I agree with you that if we were to find maybe like uh, in the Chronicles, for example, uh, a date of error that differs from the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah, that they don't exactly line up, I'm not going to say because of that the whole Bible isn't true. Um, because of also how we believe that the Holy Spirit has inspired the authors who have written it, that yes, he, he used human vessels who were, who were able to make errors. Does that necessarily mean that what they were writing and what they were writing for and about contains error? And because we confess that it is essentially Jesus Christ that it all points to, then no, the message of Jesus contained in the entirety of the scriptures is without error. And that is what I meant when I was referring to inerrancy. Well, I know with the tweet that there was something very specific you were speaking against. So can you can you give a little bit of insight to what in the culture you were specifically uh, condemning? Um, in addition, I think the reason I, I tweeted that was because I had in mind um, certain thoughts, certain schools of thought that would maybe throw out some some of the laws of the Old Testament or some of the commands in the New Testament because they disagree with the phrase, the scripture is inerrant. Um, and I think that can be dangerous because if we were to just pick and choose which verses we accept as Christian or not, um, then we are at risk of missing Jesus Christ in those places. Um, specifically laws referring to like homosexuality there's like a, a more liberal theologian might say that same-sex relationships are are completely compatible with christianity when we know the scriptures directly speak against that and when you miss the law like that whether it be in regards to homosexuality or not then you miss the fact that um jesus came to fulfill the law to save sinners who could not fulfill the law um and it and it turns back to this thing of humans not actually needing a savior. Well, thank you for that explanation. I would probably like to close the podcast by telling people where they could find you on Twitter, but you're no longer on Twitter. So um, this is going to have to suffice for now. And um, we hope to have more of your writings on the Tory Gazette in the future. Right out of your mind.